Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we're producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Kylie Wong-Dolan, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and College of Arts and Social Sciences, and the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Dr Jodie Lee Tremba. As any regular listener will know, Jodie is a founding member of The Familiar Strange and now managing editor with the team. Jodie started out as a high school drama and English teacher before moving to Vietnam to work in the Oxford University Press Marketing Department and to teach English at Saigon Technology University. Later, over several years at RMIT Vietnam, Jodie lectured in communications and then became the senior writer in the marketing and communications department. This is what got Jodie interested in her PhD topic. What she was seeing in these universities in Vietnam was quite different from what she was reading in the literature. In fieldwork, things were different again. But at each university, she found a common determination to internationalise and drive up profits. So today, Jodie and I begin talking about outside observations as a kind of training for doing ethnography and the murky distinction between being an insider or outsider in the field. We discuss Jodie's research in Vietnam at a branch campus of a Western university. In a neoliberal, globalised environment, the university crafted a very particular image of itself to appeal to prospective Vietnamese students an image of an apparently authentically Western university. Jody talks me through the amorphous idea of authenticity and the many appearances it had in her fieldwork. White academics were one selling point for the university and Jody draws out some of the challenges of this kind of commodification. We finish up talking about this project, The Familiar Strange, how it began, where we are and what's to come. This is also my first interview for the project and it was, as ever, a pleasure to speak with Jodie. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, me and Dr Jodie Lee Trembath. Okay, so the first thing that I wanted to ask was a bit about your background and experience with universities, mm. something that struck me from one of our earliest conversations this year was how many degrees you'd done mm. <laughs> and um, how qualified you were firstly, the fact that you continue to work in a university and that you did your field work during your PhD at a university. It seems like a really prominent theme in your life. Mm. I just wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how how your interest in universities as a student and also as an observer, how that began. <laughs> well, now I'm institutionalised, so I just can't get out. But I think I got in because they didn't make sense to me. I was an outsider and I hadn't really had anything to do with universities when I was growing up. I'm first in family to go to university. Mm. Um, it certainly wasn't a given that I would go to university or I wasn't universally encouraged to go. Right. Um, it was something that I really wanted and thought would be fun. I was relatively good in school and so 
it seemed like a fun thing to keep doing. And so to to then go into that system and discover that it was so bizarre, there were so many things about being at university that confused the hell out of me. And so I think I always felt like I do now as an anthropologist, that I was an observer that didn't entirely fit in, but that I needed to do work in order to pass as somebody that did fit in. In my first year, I learned the theory of cultural capital in a sociology of education class. And cultural capital, for those of you who are not familiar, which is, you know, almost everybody in the world, I think, <laughs> um, unless unless you've done educational sociology like I did or are an anthropologist. But yeah, the idea of cultural capital is that you gather these resources throughout your, particularly throughout your childhood, from your family, from your education, and that those resources set you up to be comfortable and competent in a particular space. And everybody gathers that cultural capital, but the kind of cultural capital that you gather shapes how you behave as an adult and and who you become as an adult. And so for me, I realised when I took that class that I was not exhibiting the right kinds of cultural capital in order to pass and that I needed to like in My Fair Lady, where Eliza Doolittle learns how to become, uh, yes, that's my right, language. yeah, that I needed to learn that that language, I needed to learn the body language, I needed to learn how to dress and how to um, how to pass. I was so grateful that I took that class so early on in my undergrad, and my undergrads were in drama and education, respectively. I did a double degree, and so to have picked that little gem up so early let me really embrace the fact that I was I was not just doing a drama degree to learn how to act on a stage. I was going to use my drama education to learn how to act in a university. In your story there, I really like how it sounds like you've mastered the art of being an insider-outsider. That's something that you've played with and cultivated potentially for many years. I wonder if you see that as being true because that's something that I started to see in your thesis. I don't know that I've mastered anything really, Um, (laughs) but but I, I do think that it's something that I've cultivated heavily and in terms of being an insider slash outsider during my field work, I don't see that as a dichotomy. So my one of my supervisors, Kieran Narayan, talks about being a native anthropologist and in fact coined that term. And she talks about how when you are going back into a field that you ought to be very familiar with because it's basically your home turf. For her, that was going into an Indian community that she was very familiar with, that she had grown up in, in and out of. Being in that space is actually quite disarming because you're no longer just an insider, but you're not really an outsider. That can be very dislocating. And that was very much my experience going into a university environment for fieldwork, having spent a lot of time in universities, both as a student and professionally, because they didn't see me as an insider. My participants didn't see me as an insider. Mm. I wasn't one of them. And also I was a PhD student, so although I was of a similar age to lots of them, I was further down the 
the hierarchical ladder, I suppose. So I wasn't an insider in that sense, but I was an insider because I speak university now. So I was Uh, able to pass, I guess, in that environment when I needed to. But it was useful to cultivate both insider and outsider personas because as an outsider, you get to ask dumb questions. And that's so important on fieldwork because... If you're not asking the questions that everybody else would be like, mm, okay, they don't know what they're talking about, you don't get to unpack how arbitrary culture can actually be. And cultural norms often come about through this range of sort of background instances that are no longer apparent, I guess, to the people who are now living them out. So they, they have become arbitrary but they also feel completely natural. They feel completely normal and right in that context. And it's only when an outsider comes along and says, but why do you do it that way? That people start to question, oh, is that not the only way that it can be done? So it's really important to be an outsider in that context. But working with academics, it was also useful to be able to sometimes be able to play the insider role and say, oh, yes, you know, marking, I understand about marking. I've done marking. Marking is the worst. And yes, I completely can sympathise with that. So I don't see myself as either, but I definitely cultivated both personas. That sounds like a really valuable skill. I think it's probably one that every anthropologist uses to some extent, particularly because we're in the field for such a long time. Over time, you start to feel like an insider in any given context. When that happens, there is cachet in that. That that gives you something and it gives your participants something as well. It gives them a sense of trust in you. Actually, I would like it if we could elaborate a bit on the idea of trust. There's something that you said to me not too long ago about how the way that you comport yourself, and I think you personally, this is the way that you told this story, enabled people to confide in you to a greater extent than you imagine they might some other anthropologist or another person working in your position. I wonder what the relationship between that kind of comportment and your insider, outsider, in quotations, what that relationship might have been. Yeah, that's a really tricky one because people often see me as non-threatening, which is a good thing because I am not threatening anybody. (laughs) But... I think that having that, it's not a facade, it's not one persona, it's almost an altar in the in the sense right. of, of having multiple people within a person, right? So mm-hmm. if you think about that way of being with people, it does tend to relax people into feeling that they can tell me things. And I would like to think that I am a good confidant. I don't share what people tell me and I hope I earn that trust. But what it does mean is that I have to be quite careful to reinforce all the time when I'm in the field. I am writing this down. This is for the purpose of research. If you tell me this, you need to then tell me if you don't want me to use it and I'm going to keep asking you about that but often people forget when they're with me when I'm in the field that I am doing research and I do need to be really vigilant about following up with people from an ethical perspective so that they remember that this is not just a casual chat that this Mm. that they are always on the record unless they tell me that they're not that sounds incredibly difficult and it's it's not something that I'm looking forward to. I think it, that's a dilemma that probably every anthropologist in fieldwork must face. I think so, yeah. And it was something that we talked on the last panel episode. Simon said that ultimately fieldwork becomes like hanging out with your best mates. Right, and right. And 
And in some ways that's true, but for me at least, it's like you're always two people in that context because on the one hand you're you having a good time Mm. with people you really like and respect and want to hang out with and then you're also at the same time having to maintain a professional distance. This might be an interesting segue into the idea of authenticity that you Mm. speak about in your thesis. I wonder if presenting yourself and thinking about yourself differently according to the kinds of work you're doing and the kinds of people you're around, if that informs how you think about authenticity and and were there particular situations or dispositions that you employed that enabled you to feel maybe more or less authentic than others? Yeah, authenticity is such an interesting concept because it's like smoke. You can never quite catch it. You can never quite pin it down. And I think the reason for that is because it's always subjective. There is, to my mind, no objective reality of authenticity. There is not an authentic anything. So is this food authentic? Well, that depends on whether you think that authentic food needs to be from a particular place, whether it needs to have a particular flavour, have specific ingredients that come from a particular place. If you don't think all of those things are necessary for authenticity, then you might think that a particular food is perfectly authentic and vice versa. So authenticity in a fieldwork context, as in whether or not you are being an authentic person, for me, I am constantly observing myself in the same way that I am constantly observing other people. And so I don't think of myself as the researcher in a space as being of, of my opinion as being more important than theirs or the way that I'm seeing it. It's just another way of seeing a particular phenomenon from the perspective of my research and whether or not a university is being an authentic version of what a university should be, again, there are these different paradigms of what a university should, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, what a university should be. And Joelle Fanganel wrote this fantastic book called Being an Academic, and she talks through these different ideologies that universities are built around. And there's the idea that a university should be there for the sake of education. Education for education's sake, we should become a more educated society because it's good for society, full stop. So there's that. There's another one that says universities should prepare students for the world of work, that they should produce citizens that can contribute to society and in our society, that's a capitalist society. And then there's another paradigm that says universities should be transformative. They should try and change the world for the better. They should make people's lives better and that that's our goal in both doing education and research. And what I found when I went into the field was that those three paradigms, those three ideologies were being talked about all the time, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But actually there was this other ideology going on as well, yeah. which I kind of called a perpetuation ideology, which was that we need to keep, like universities should continue universities. Yeah. 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 And that if we didn't continue the university, then the university wouldn't continue. It was very cyclical and it was very much tied up with doing marketing in order to keep the university going because if we didn't, the university wouldn't keep going, which seemed very hollow in terms of the original kind of authentic idea of what a university does. 
and should do. So that was where I kind of got into the idea of authenticity and whether or not authenticity even should exist because clearly these ideas were so contested and so subjective anyway. It seems possible also that the idea of the perpetuation ideology, that that sustains all three ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So so in some ways, even if they're competing, they're sustained anyway. Absolutely. Right, so is that what sustains the ideology? People can jump from holding a transformation ideology to holding a a production ideology. People can jump between those two so easily and then flip in the same conversation into believing in education for education's sake. So people jump back and forth all the time and don't seem to see any contradiction in it when they're talking. But does authenticity remain the mainstay? Even when there's a bit of flip-flop between what might be most important in a university, is there some bedrock value around authenticity? No, it's just the perpetuation ideology. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even say that. I would say that what people believe to be an authentic university underpins whatever ideology they happen to be purporting at any given moment and that they don't even notice the subtle shift in their thinking between what they believe an authentic university to be in any given moment. So there are absolutely some people who wouldn't go near, say, a production ideology, that they are hardcore, you know, education should be for education's sake, universities are here to be independent, therefore the public good, not for fueling a capitalist economy. There are definitely those people and there are definitely people who are focused on any given one, but even so the language of the others tends to creep in and Mm -hmm. and that's why I think that the idea of authenticity is so nebulous. What about from the student's perspective? What do you think students attending this university and how do you think they interpreted or thought about authenticity? So this is a really core idea of my thesis. On the one hand, you have how academics feel about a university and the purpose of a university. But on the other, students often have quite different ideals around that. And because I was in a Western university in Vietnam, which markets itself very heavily towards sort of the upper middle classes, who the university at least believes are aspiring towards sort of a Western ideal in their education. So they're very much marketing themselves towards those students and their belief about those students. And whether or not this is true is a different thing. I didn't interview students. I didn't gather data from students particularly. Mm -hmm. But certainly the university marketing department and the academics believed quite heavily that what the students wanted to see in a university was a traditional, authentic, Western experience of academia. How that looked was crafted around the Vietnamese imaginary of the Western ideal university. Now, whether or not that was actually the Vietnamese student ideal, I don't know. But it was certainly what the staff thought the Vietnamese imaginary was. Can we back up for a second? Let's talk a little bit about the university you did your field work at. Sure. So it was an international branch of a university that had its main campus in a western some, country. In a western country. Yeah. There are four or at the time I was doing fieldwork, there are four international branch campuses in Vietnam. And so they had set up a campus in Vietnam and were trying to entice Vietnamese students to study there and offer 
a campus experience and a university experience that replicated in some way or was seen to replicate in some way the university experience that they might have had had they gone to that Western country. Is that right? Yes, spot on. Could you tell me how did the university present itself to appeal to Vietnamese students? Mm, Okay, so there were a number of layers to that. If we start with the physical presentation of the Mm -hmm. university, it looked different to Vietnamese universities. From the perspective of the architecture, it was sort of funky, as you would imagine, a big, funky Google-style campus would look. They were modelling the architecture on and they always brought in Western architects to do the designs and it was very, yeah, sleek surfaces and bright colours and uh, very clean lines. And there's an irony to that, isn't there? Because when I personally think about what my authentic and again, I'm putting that in inverted commas, Western University looks like, it looks like Oxford, it looks like Cambridge, it's, you know, it's the, or in in Australia, it's the sandstone universities, not new and modern and sleek, but in Vietnam, new and modern and sleek is preferable and old is out. Okay, or, or seem to be preferable and seem to be out. Right. Right. Although I lived in Vietnam for a long time and that was certainly my perception of my Vietnamese friends and students also. I should also say that it's not that the university that I did my fieldwork at wasn't doing research. They had loads of market research behind them to tell them what students wanted to see. So it's not that they didn't have the research, it's that I didn't gather that data myself mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. why I'm making that distinction mm-hmm. so yeah lots of clean lines color beautifully landscaped lawns gardens lots of amazing equipment huge kind of sports facility for a lot of the academics coming onto the campus from other countries they were like wow this is so schmick like so so much more pleasant in many ways than being on the home campuses that they had come from and so in many ways not a very authentic version of what a university looks like in a Western country. But it had air conditioning and it had beanbags for people to sleep on and it had microwaves. And these were things that were not common in Vietnamese universities, certainly at the time, I'm not sure now. So they were seen as a point of difference for students that wanted that Western experience and thought that that was what a Western experience looked like according to their market research. So there was that sort of starting level of how things looked and how they physically felt. So that was one thing that they were doing. They they used their physical environment to capture the feeling of a Western university as they felt that Vietnamese students felt that it should be. Yeah, I love meta. It. Yeah. <laughs> and then in addition to that, a big part of it was who they hired approximately 80% of the academic staff were not Vietnamese, 20% were, and a lot of them were white. And that was talked about constantly on campus by both students, staff of every nationality as being what the students wanted. Oh, so it was very much seen as this is what we sell. We sell white academics and therefore we need white academics because otherwise how are we going to sell them? That filtered down into everything. It filtered down into marketing practices and it filtered down into recruitment practices when they were recruiting staff. How did these white academics feel about being represented that way and being recruited potentially for those reasons Mm. or largely for those reasons? It was really complex. It was a really complex experience for those who were conscious of it. And I don't think everybody 
was conscious of it. But anybody who was having any kind of conversation with the marketers of the university were aware that white faces were a necessary commodity on campus. And so for the academics, there was definitely a feeling of, but hang on, I've gone into academia to live the life of the mind. You know, I'm an intellectual and I use my brain because that's something that I've grown up being good at usually. And so to then go to a place where you're valued for your looks is jarring, really jarring. Mm. But at the same time, it gives you a whole heap of privileges that you have probably not been conscious of in your previous life. Being a minority group as a white person in Vietnam Mm -hmm. is probably not something that most white people have experienced. And so to be a minority that gets privileges but also is being exploited, it's a complex place to be. And to then have to manage the identity work that comes with being marketed as a product when you think of yourself as a an intellectual. It's tough and a lot of people struggled. One really influential ethnography by Emma Caval speaks about the stigma of white privilege and how being a white person or a non-Indigenous person in Australia in particular contexts, while this is a privileged identity, it's also a stigmatised one and one that people feel in some cases in a sense ashamed of or apologetic for and people self-efface in Caval's words. I wonder what kinds of techniques white academics used at the university to to manage that, to manage feeling like a commodity, to manage wanting to be also seen or seen primarily for their intellectual capabilities and also add into the mix the fact that they're in a new country or a country that they're not from, pursuing a career as a teacher and a researcher. How did people make sense of these multiplicities? Well, in as many different ways as there were different academics there. Um, (laughs) Depending on what people's motivation is for coming to a a university like that, um, and it probably changes from person to person day to day, but depending on that motivation is going to depend on what kind of strategies a person might use to manage the dislocation that occurs to their identity once they get there. So if you've come, you, you believe in a transformation ideology, you believe that education is transformative for people's lives and that if you come to this country and bring education to these people, then that's going to be transformative for them. When you discover that you are in fact there to be a white face and market the university, that can be incredibly disheartening and depressing Mm. because you're like, what difference are you actually making if you're not there to really be an educator or do transformative research? I remember reading that universities, these Western universities, had built campuses overseas and in, can we call them developing countries? Yeah, well, it's a really contested term, but nobody's come up with what should be used. So um, let's go with developing for now. The idea that these Western universities had created new campuses in developing countries seemed to be, in my reading in your thesis, an effort towards decolonisation. And I wonder how these 
white academics felt being positioned in that way as selling an idea of whiteness, but being part of an effort to decolonize. I wonder if they ran up against each other in a, I can't even imagine what way. That sounds really conflicting and challenging. Yeah, so what I observed during my fieldwork was that there was definitely this experience of chaos that people were coming into the space of this university, most having been academics in other countries, often their home country, um, but sometimes they had been in other countries as well, coming into this space thinking that they were there as competent professionals. They'd been hired because they were competent professionals Mm. and that they were going to come into this space, plunk themselves down and continue to be an academic because, you know, academia, certainly Western academia, there's this notion that it is consistent across the world and that you can basically pick yourself up, move to a new place and that academia will be the same wherever you are. And that is absolutely not the case. And for most of those academics coming into that space, they had lost this huge network that they had built up in their previous workplaces, detached themselves from that network to a large extent and found themselves sort of rootless in this new environment. Mm. So to come into that space in a way that was already difficult. Moving house is difficult. Moving state is difficult. Moving countries is difficult. Moving jobs is difficult. Any of those things is tricky. And then to come into this new space and discover that you are perhaps more like a marketing material than an academic. And perhaps this is the case in other universities to varying extents too. But at this university, it was quite explicit. It was talked about a lot, which I haven't seen in other countries and other universities as much. And so it was really, it was in your face. It was hard to avoid the the idea that the academics were part of the, the sales pitch. And so what I observed was these academics kind of going through this sense of crisis as they arrived. And generally for a good three to six months, they needed to be managing that experience. So the university has an expectation that they're not just purchasing an academic for the purposes of teaching research and service, which are the three traditional tenets of academia, that they are also purchasing professionalism. When they're talking about professionalism, they're actually talking about the way that they expect an academic to behave. So they want somebody who can be efficient. They want somebody that can produce a lot. They want somebody who can stay calm and not kick up a fuss because if you kick up a fuss, then it doesn't actually matter how good you are at all the other stuff. If they have to performance manage you in any way, then all of those other good qualities that you may have basically get negated. Mm-hmm. So Because the university can't perpetuate. Exactly. In the way that you described before. Exactly. Exactly. And it's harder to sell you. It's harder to put you in front of a group of prospective parents and students and say, look, we have great people that you are going to want to come and work with if you have a person there who's falling apart at the seams. Do you not think that those kinds of that value for professionalism in in all the ways that you've described is translatable to all universities? Was that unique to there? No, not at all. This is is 100% something that I 
that I see across the board. Mm-hmm. I've been involved with nine different universities wow. over the course okay. of my career. <laughs> and um, that one is consistent. And in fact, the, the goal of my thesis wasn't necessarily to show how this environment was different to other universities, which is usually the goal of, of anthropology, right, is to look at a place and show how it's different and compare it to the things we already know about the world. And my goal was actually a bit different to that. My goal was to say, I think this is an extreme case of something that is consistent across the board and sort of here but for the grace of God go I and everybody else. So in this kind of extreme neoliberal globalised environment, what manifests when those ideologies intersect in this environment and therefore what can other universities expect to happen if they continue to go down that neoliberal globalised path? Right. And is that what other universities are doing? I think a lot of them are, yes. I think certainly in most countries, not most Western countries, most countries, there is an increasingly neoliberal agenda. And again, that gets interpreted differently in every country and it looks different in every country and every environment. But the neoliberal logics around corporatization of the university, profit-driven logics, treating students as customers and, and students expecting to be treated as customers, these are things that we're seeing all over the world. And And the more that that happens, the more that we are likely, I think, to see this sense of that academic labour has is changing because, mm. you know, it's not just teaching, research, service and professionalism. It is all of that. And then in addition to that, it's also marketing the university. Your job becomes marketing the university and to a large extent being the marketing materials of the university. Do you think there's any way back? Should there be a way back? Well, as an academic myself, I'm not a fan of the way things are headed. I too feel commodified and I don't like that feeling. Can I ask you about that? Sure. In in what sense do you feel commodified? In the sense that as an academic, I feel myself to be a resource that, that a university can exploit. I'm not merely an actor in the system. I am a resource that is being used within the system, often in ways that I don't necessarily consent to. And Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason I got out, because the only way to decline from being exploited is to leave the way that it currently stands. And I intend to go back into academia in the future, but I think it needs to be a conscious choice that we each make in yeah. being in and out of academia. And I wasn't able to make that decision the way that I was feeling by the end of my thesis about academia. Let's talk about the opportunities that are available to anthropologists beyond this institution. You founded some years ago this project, The Familiar Strange, that is trying to get ideas in anthropology accessible to the public, freely so, and to engage people in anthropology. Can you tell me about how The Familiar Strange started, some of your reflections, and what opportunities and what kinds of freedoms perhaps it's given you that your experience in the university hasn't been able to? So, yes, Ian, Julia, Simon and I founded TFS in 2017. And I think for us it was it started off as an outlet because we were all angry about Trump being elected. And for all of us it was this really transformative experience observing that happen. We were talking about it using anthropological theory 
and trying to unpack how the hell it had happened and feeling like how lucky are we that we have these tools, that we have this vocabulary to be able to at least try to make sense of it. Not that we have, by the way, made sense of it, but at least we had language to be able to try and unpack it and not feel that the world was just drowning in despair, that at least there was some some sense to be drawn out of it. And that felt really powerful. And so I think we were very motivated to say, these are tools that other people could be using. And for me, anthropology was a new thing and it blew my mind. I was reading things that I had never thought about before and it was just, I really felt like there was something in anthropology particularly that was different to all of the other education that I had done that could help people start to draw out some of the weirdness that is going on in the world right now. And so... It really was about saying, let's let's take these tools and give them to other people because otherwise we're just, we're all going to drown together. That was kind of the, like where it started. And then from there, it kind of just grew into this really beautiful space for us where we got to have intellectual conversations every week together and have interesting topics to be able to debate and we were just really fortunate that people wanted to listen and that they wanted to engage with that and that was just that was the dream that people would want to engage and so that's always been our goal with this project is to is to not just talk to each other is to talk to the people that are listening and have them talk back I wanted to ask about how far the project's come, if you have any stories about your time as a familiar stranger, and also, if you want, a little bit about your vision. How, yeah, how do you think about the familiar strange beyond now? Yeah, okay. I think what we hoped for this was that in addition to the idea of of these tools being useful to others, we also felt that, that the anthropology scene in Australia is really vibrant and that there's a lot going on here and we wanted to provide a platform for Australian anthropologists um, and anthropologists based in Australia to be able to get those ideas out beyond an Australian audience Um, and that's still our goal. The majority of our listeners now are in the US and the second largest group is in the UK and that's really cool and I hope that that means that as Australian anthropologists engage with the project that their ideas are starting to make their way out into the world in and not that we're the only platform obviously doing that but it's it's another way it's another Mm. channel that people can use to get their ideas out and I would like to see TFS continuing to be that channel particularly for Australia-based anthropologists and I think that there's such value to having your people and being able to speak a similar language to the the people around you and there's arguments against jargon right jargon can be just so exclusionary and that is a terrible thing when you are excluding others with your use of language But on the flip side of that, when you are with people who all speak that language, there's such joy in being able to use words that you know that everybody else is going to be on board with and you don't have to explain yourself. And it's it's such a feeling of relaxation. So I feel like for 
us with TFS, there's kind of a dual purpose there. There there is, on the one hand, the public-facing stuff that we do, the podcast, the blog, where we're really trying not to go into that, that jargonary land to draw more people in so that they can have access to those tools, even if they don't speak the language. But then on the flip side of that, we have things like the Facebook chats group, which is a place where most people there seem to speak the same language and can use jargon and can just feel comfortable to use the language that they know and feel like they're amongst friends. If we can achieve that to any extent at all, then that's a pretty big win. You're winning. Win, yeah. That was it, me and Dr. Jodie Lee Trembath. Today's interview was produced by me, Kylie Wong Dolan, with help from the other familiar strangers, Julia Brown, Alex DeLoya, Jodie Lee Trembath, and Simon Theobald. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fulm. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can do it on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.